All right. Thank you. All right, we're ready to go. Thank you. I forget. I've been forgetting things all, all, all day today. So I forgot the mic, got everything and forgot the microphone. I was in the second service as we're getting ready to go up there today. And I realized, where's the clicker? And I realized, oh, it was in my jacket, which I took off after the first service and I left in my office. And it's kind of like, so if anybody who's in the second service sees me running out right before the, the message started, that was why. So anyhow, well, let me go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the chance that we do have to come together and, Father, to again spend this time diving into your word. Thank you for the truths and principles that are here. Thank you for the ideas that we can uh, spend time in and really reflect on. I thank you for the chance not only to learn principles that help us to better understand your word, but, Father, to, to also in the process to spend time in your word and, Father, to be able to apply some of those principles to learn and, Father, hopefully to... Um, um, to not only understand, uh, again, the concepts, but, but uh, to understand you and uh, the, the whole call, the relationship with you. Father, I pray your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now we have, um, we're in the, this whole second, you know, started last time talking about different um, aspects of, and different kind of, uh, of styles, of literature style. And so we kind of introduced that last time and we started then into the historical narrative. Before we get there, let me um, address something. I know that uh, actually Jim had talked to me afterwards and somebody else did as, as well about this morning. And for those that were here this morning, you know that we've been in John chapter six and there's a lot in John chapter six. Um, and, and one of the things you realize is that there's some things that I didn't get to and some people were asking, what about this? What about, um, and, and I will tell you that's, um, there's a, an expository preaching. And then if I were to teach on a, on a subject, I would try to bring out all the different aspects and say, okay, here's this, here's this verse, here's this. When I'm preaching, what I've always felt like in preaching is that you're, you're looking at a, drawing things out, exegetical, but you're really trying to say, okay, what is the, what is the major theme that I want to look at here? And a lot of times, you know, you don't get to. And it's not that you're saying it's unimportant, but it's, as you pray through a, a passage, it's, it's, okay, this is the direction that I feel like God is, is, is calling me to emphasize. Um, and a lot of times that may, may realize that you get into a passage that, you know, there's something really significant there, um, but because you just felt like you were called to really focus on this one piece, you don't even get to touch on, on an, an aspect of a really significant aspect of that passage. And so, and so I wanted to just take a, a minute. Actually, there's a number of things that we could look at in John chapter six. Um, but I wanted to, to, to bring out one that, uh, you know, that again, Jim had mentioned, that somebody else had mentioned. And that is, it, you know, here's this whole passage and it's about this crowd and this crowd that were initially followers of Jesus and then Jesus gives this hard teaching and, um, and they, turn around, they turn away from him. And, and in this, it's actually something we didn't look at last week. There's a very strong statement about the whole idea of the kind of the theology of, of um, you know, God's election. You know, there's, there's, you know, so we could have spent a ton of time there and could really talk about election. But he has this whole thing about, you know, that, you know, that he talks about, um, you know, um, 
you know, said to you, um, the Father gives me all that will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven to do my own will, but the one who sent me. And, and, you know, so it talks about this whole idea of, you know, so there's a whole theology there that we didn't touch on last week. Uh, this week, I just, there's one that actually really applies to some of the things we've been talking about. And that is you have this whole passage that's talking about all these people that, have left, that are leaving Jesus. And, and that's in contrast, if, even this morning, if you were here, you know that we did a contrast between the crowd and the, the eleven. And you notice it was the 11, it wasn't the 12, because there's actually another contrast right there in that passage, which is the contrast of the 11 with Judas. And so let me go ahead and and read from uh, John chapter 6. Let me start in verse 60. And I want you to just hear this, and I I want you to notice again this part that stands out. that they, uh, They said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? What then if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Uh, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe, not believe, and who, who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that none of you can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of, uh, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. Now you notice how unusual that is, that you have, you know, in the midst of this, Twice he talks about the crowd, but he said, okay, he knew, didn't believe, specifically pulls out this one that was part of the group. And then in verse 70, he has this really weird statement where it talks about, you know, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And, and you have to say, okay, what is, the, the strange thing of that is when you think about it, or Judas had said nothing in this whole passage. It wasn't like Judas was a key factor, a key character at all. He wasn't. You know, Judas was, he was back in the back. You would never have thought of him. And yet Jesus pulls him out, you know, or, you know, or says something, and, and, and John pulls him out and puts an emphasis here. And you're like, why in the world does he do that? You know, why in the world are you even talking? And why is it that you have this, you know, this strong statement? If you look at it, there's a commonality. Um, Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who uh, those were who do not believe and who it was that betrayed him. And then, again, he says it really clearly, did I not choose you, yet one of you is a, is a devil. In the beginning, on the other hand, it's even putting it stronger, that he chose knowing that this person was a betrayer. So you have to ask, okay, why do we have that? And again, I'm not going to say that there's, and I, I, I can say there's probably multiple lessons here. Um, but I think one of the things that is really a powerful lesson, Jesus is kind of setting things up. And what he's saying is, okay, when, when bad things happen, when people betray us, when, you know, when, when, when life seems like it's out of control, God's sovereign over everything. And, and if, you, if you think about this, if you remember the other part that emphasizes what? God's sovereignty. 
And the fact is, is on the one hand, you look at it and you say, well, God, there's a sovereignty of God in the way that he works in people's lives and the way that he draws us to himself. There's a sovereignty in God in all that, but there's a sovereignty not only in the positive that we can see, okay, God, God was working in my life this way. He was setting this up. He was drawing me to myself. But there's even a sovereignty in what seems to be the negative. That, that here you have Jesus really saying, okay, and I'm, I'm kind of planting the seed that something's going to happen further down the road and you're going to see like, you know, this guy that we trusted, he betrayed us and how that's terrible. And, and Jesus is saying, I want you to, to realize that from the beginning, I'm not surprised by any of this. Not only am I not surprised, but I chose him knowing that this was going to be the case. That this was, there was an intentionality of choosing that somehow part of God's choice, again, God is not the source of evil. He didn't, you know, he, he, he didn't plant the evil in Judas's heart, but yet a sovereignty is such that he's sovereign even over the evil that happens. And it's not like God makes a choice and then it's like, okay, well, this happened and then he, come on, let's fix it. No, that God was, God's sovereign even, even over those choices, even over the direction from, from, very, from the very beginning. Isn't that powerful? And, and so, you, so you look at that, and it's, you know, that's, that's there. And that's, you know, that's one of the, there were several things actually in this John 6. There's so much. It's such a big passage um, that even spending four weeks on it, we, there was a ton of stuff we didn't get to. Um, you know, but that was just one of the things that as I was working on it this week, you know, I, I, you know part of me wants, I want to, you know, I want to develop this because this is really kind of this, this, this really, it, and the, the weird thing on it is it's, it's, it's somewhat related to what's before, but you, know, but you, could, you could see how it's very different than what the, the emphasis we had this morning. Um, you know, but the thing is, is there's so much in Scripture that you look at, but every time there's something there that seems really strange, um, the fact of the matter is it, it's always there for a purpose. So any other comments or questions on that before we keep going? Both times, it, the emphasis is on, in verse 64, he talks about he knew from the beginning. And then in verse 70, he says, I chose you. And so the emphasis both times seems to be you know, on, you know, not that I knew this was going to happen, or, but it was kind of like from the very beginning, I knew you know, he knew what was going to happen. And then he says, didn't I choose the 12? But, but one of you is the devil. So basically, you know, I, I chose knowing this. It's not like I chose, but one of you... It's, it's not like, well, I chose you know, 12 good men, but I, you know, I, even I couldn't get, reach all 12. Um, you know, and, and sometimes, I mean, and even an example of that, you know, sometimes we, we somewhat jokingly say, you know, like with, you know, with kids, you know, it's like, well, if one of our kids don't turn out with, you know, there were two kids from Adam and Eve, and, and half, only half of them turned out good, you know, and, and we kind of joke about, well, it gives me hope. And, and we can joke about that in a sense, you know, but it's not really saying, okay, that even Jesus couldn't get through to all 12. It's really saying, it's, it's, it's really saying, no, Jesus knew beforehand that Judas would deny him. That Judas knew beforehand that that was Judas's heart. And he chose him even knowing that. Um, you know, so I think the emphasis really is on the sovereignty. Um, and, and again, if you go all the way back then to 
to verses you know, 35 to 45, which again is the emphasis on sovereignty, on God's election, that all those who he, you know, that he calls will come and that he doesn't lose any of them. So it's all emphasis. So. And again, I think what, one of the things that we, you know, we talk about is that there's probably a lot of applications of that. But if I were to say, what is the main thing that's kind of being emphasized from the text, I would say that's it. So, um, anyhow, it's, 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 there's, you know, the, um, I could tell you on, on, a, on a regular message, I probably have, if you ever to see my, my files, I probably usually have like anywhere 10 to 15 different files of notes, you know, and, and I, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that I never get to use. I mean, there's so much there. And that's, you know, that's always even part of the challenge of preaching is you study and you study and you learn. And you're like, okay, God, where do you want me to focus? And, and you know, and, and there's always a sense of saying, oh, but I, but I don't get to talk about this. You know, I don't get to, you know, because there's so many good, you know, wonderful points. Uh, but that was one that just kind of stuck out, kind of like, what does this mean? Because it's such an unusual passage. Let me just go through kind of where we've gone so far. Um, you know, this is kind of this idea of historical narrative as being the, uh, the parts of the passage or parts of the, the Bible that talk about story parts, you know, in a sense that, you know, um, you know, you know, Genesis, Exodus, you know, you have, uh, first, second Samuel, uh, you know, huge, you know, first part of Daniel, huge parts of the old Testament, as well as the gospels and acts. And, um, and so, so that's what we're talking about. And so um, if, if we talk about, the, here's, a, here's a definition. It's, um, it's not just history, but it's God teaching his divine message through the accurate, though not necessarily exhaustive, and divinely inspired account of real historical events. So it's all real, it's all historical, and, and everything that's said is, is said accurately, but it's not the same thing as a biography. It's not the same thing as a history. It's, it's not at all. It's, it's, a, it's a very distinct literature style where it's teaching, and specifically in this case, if it's divinely inspired, it's teaching God's divine message through the accurate but not exhaustive. It's a very selective telling of the story because everything that it's telling is telling to make a point. Um, and so it's, you know, so what, what, does, what does historical t- uh, narrative teach? Uh, it's always teaching about who God is and how he works in the lives of, of men and women. So it's, again, it's a, it's, a spiritual, it's a spiritual thing. It's always focused on God. It's always focused about what God's purpose is. Uh, through the portrayal of the lives of others, it often gives us, a, or gives us a picture of the blessings of godly living and or the long-term effects of ungodly living. Now, we're going to see these ideas play out even in what we're going to you know, talk about today. You know, but it's teaching us, not, it's not didactic. This is where the didactic is the teaching part. And we often look for that. And there are very few times, you know, the, the best example is again, you know, uh, you know, David's caught in an act of adultery and, and God sends the prophet to confront him. That doesn't happen very often in historical narrative. The vast majority of time it's taught through consequences. And it's always teaching the rightness and wrongness of behavior but it's not taught the way that we expect it, and that's where we often kind of you know, stumble. Uh, it is 100% accurate in what it claims to say. And now it's not claiming to say everything, 
But in what it does claim to say, realize is that we can't apply the rule, you know, can't, we've got to apply the rules of historical narrative of speech that you would do. So when, so again, if it's, if it's the best, I think we use the example of, you know, the sun stood still. It's not trying to say that, that the sun was the, uh, or the earth was the center of the universe and the sun is moving around. That wasn't, it's a figure of speech. Um, so it's not, you don't try to force it to say something it isn't. Um, and then any passage that's written as historical narrative should be interpreted literally as historical narrative. And that's, again, a huge factor that, you know, you have tons of people that are arguing about all kinds of, you know, I think Genesis primarily, but we talked about Jonah and other passages that people try to interpret as something other than historical narrative. But you have to apply the rules of what makes something historical narrative. And if it's written according to the rules of historical narrative, we can't say, well, I, I choose to make it something else. And uh, so we have to read it that way. Okay, what historical narrative does not teach? Um, it does not teach that everything that happened to believers then should be the norm for believers today, nor that every action done by believers then should be, be repeated by believers today. Now, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm going to give a little... We're going to get into this, a great example of this in the book of Acts. And probably the book of Acts is where we stumble on this rule the most. And so we're going to spend some time later today looking at the book of Acts. And, um, and, and you know, and whole denominations are built on misapplying this rule. Um, second, um, when, there is, when there is not a direct connection to the rightness or wrongness of an action in the text... The key to proper interpretation is knowing the rules for discovering the indirect comment um, on God's approval or disapproval of the actions. So again, so that's where you say, okay, when, it, when, it doesn't, when you don't have the prophet show up, then how do you see that? And, and it's two things, two key concepts. Number one, look for the key effects of the behavior. Um, and so you're looking at it and saying something happened. Go a couple chapters further on and see that how did this decision, how did it play out? You know, you always see, you know, okay, okay, Jacob, you know, married, you know, two women and then had, you know, kids with their handmaidens. And well, how did that turn out? You don't have to look real far to see that that was a giant mess. Okay, God was not happy with that because it was breaking the principles of God. And then the second rule is look for the commentary and other scriptures on the events whole. And there are a lot of, there's so many times, and we looked at, I know even for example, again, for like just even, you could look, backwards, so when David um, you know, married multiple wives, you look back in scripture and you see there were things way before that that give us commentary. So there's all kinds of things that are in other scripture that help us interpret things. And, um, and you know, so we need to do that. It's, again, while it's 100% accurate and all that it seeks to say, it does not intend to be a science book or history book. And, and again, it tells us these things, but it's not trying to Another good example of this is that people will argue about um, you know, numbers and how, how precise the numbers are. Again, it's, it, the style is it's not trying to be history books. It's not trying to give us an exact count. So it's common to, to round things off. Um, you know, you'll find that, I, I know I use some, some examples of this, um, you know, you know archaeology and how that works out. Um, you know, but, but you have certain things of even the way it's being said, that it's often being said, like for example, you have things being written about the two kingdoms once Israel is divided. 
What's interesting is that sometimes the dating seems a little off until you realize that the two kingdoms had slightly different dating systems. And once you understand that, it actually pulls it together. And so it's, you know, but it's not, it's not intended to be kind of like this, okay, we're trying to make it all work. No, it's telling you it's written by the rules of, of the uh, literature. Um, the Bible does not intend to be a history book that records the history of mankind, but it's a theological book about God working in the history of mankind. Um, you know, so it's, um, and, again, and this can wrap up the summation. Its purpose is not to give us a detailed account of past events, but to teach us about God ourselves and his call upon our lives through the accurate recounting of historical events. And again, that's really important. And I think we've talked about this a little bit, that one of the mistakes that we get is that we, you know, we, we can want to learn more about the history, and then we go back and we're pulling things together, or we're going to extra-biblical uh, sources, and we're, um, you know, we're, you know, we're pulling together chronicles and, and Samuel, and we're saying, okay, here's a total story. And when you do those things, what you're doing is you might get the whole story, but you're missing kind of the, the writing, the, the historical narrative. You're, te- you're missing the lesson because it's not just to teach us about history. Those things are interesting to know. You see, I'll tell you, unfortunately, I've, I've been to even, I remember um, even in seminary, there were some people that tried to teach it as history. And they tried to teach, you know, we'd, we'd have, have a book that's all about, you know, history of Israel and that tries to, you know, kind of combine, um, you know, the Bible with archeology span and extra biblical accounts and things like that, which is really interesting, but that's way different than studying the Bible because the Bible is teaching it's not just telling us the, of, of, of the accounts. It's teaching us about God, about ourselves, his call upon our lives through the accurate but very selective telling of those accounts. So that's kind of uh, summation. So let's give you rules for interpreting historical narrative. This is where we're picking up from this week. Um, okay, I'm trying to get it to... I think I'm, I'm stuck here. My batteries. Okay, um, I'll kind of I'll kind of tell you as you go at this one. You don't have to fill in rules for interpreting historical narrative. Number one, always look for God as the main character. And again, these are things that that are true. Um, you know, these are ideas that we've talked about. Kind of, you're going to see some overlap of some of the other rules of interpretation. Um, you know, so that when you look at this, God is always in, the, in, the, in the, um, the main character. We talked about, like, for example, Esther and how the book of Esther, you know, you see God isn't there. Um, you know, but, it, but the whole story is about Esther. Another example of that is the life of Joseph. So if you go to Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50, if you read it, it seems to be about Joseph's faith in God's absence. You know, if you look at that, here you've got Joseph who, his brothers betray him, he's down in Egypt, he's surrounded by these foreign gods, and, and he has this faith in the midst of God's absence. That's what it seems to be the case. Thank you very much. Um, but when you think about it, what you find is that God is there all the time. And so I know we use, for example, in Genesis 37, that whole story about where Joseph was betrayed. I mean, you have his, you know, his, that, that kind of weird thing where it puts, you know, like eight verses in there for him just walking and finding his brothers. 
And it's really explicit that God was setting this up. It's the same idea that we're talking about in John 6 today, that God was sovereign, but that God, although he was not the source of evil, he was sovereign in every step of the way. And he's the one that actually moved Joseph in that direction to make sure that he didn't miss being sold into slavery. But then you go, you think about it. Um, you have in, in Genesis 39, um, you know, we have this, you know, his faithfulness and God is serving. And, but in the midst of that, God made sure that he went to Potiphar's house, that God not only put him in Potiphar's, yeah, in, in this place, but there was a, a place that he put him that he would become known, that he would be, there was a sense of a training. Uh, Joseph, when you think about him being, serving in Potiphar's house, here's a pretty high, you know, high guy in the, in the whole, Joseph is almost certainly being exposed to all these people. He's learning an awful lot about the whole Egyptian court. So when, when he is then put in charge, the fact is he's, he's learned about that. It's not like here's a guy that's been serving just out in the, the boonies and he has no idea how to function in Pharaoh's court. No, he's observed because he's been serving in Potiphar's house. See, that was God's sovereignty. God's working there. And so you see God's step throughout all the way. Um, you know, things that seem to be God's, you know, or, you know, God, where are you? You know, here you have these dreams, right? And you have, you know, the baker is put to death and the cupbearer forgets. God, you know, you gave me these dreams and then this guy forgets about me and he's staying in prison. But even his forgetfulness was God's sovereign hand. The fact is, is that God planted that seed of truth in the guy so that when Pharaoh would have this dream, he would say, now I remember. See, God is sovereign even over the forgetfulness. It, it, when you look at the being faithful in the midst of God's absence in this hostile environment by himself, but when you really look deeper, God is so prevalent through every aspect of, every, of everything there. And, and you really don't see it until, you know, if there's a place where it comes out, you know, Joseph finally sees it in Genesis 50 at the very end. And, uh, you know, so at the very end, which is, um, you know, which is kind of a sad, you know, in a sense, one, um, one sense is sad, you know, that Joseph um, has healed things with his brothers, with his dad. Um, everything seems to be going, going well, and then the dad dies. And, and the brothers are, are worried. Suddenly they're... And so they're really, they're really worried about this. And, you know, they're worried about, uh, okay, what's going to happen now? And um, I'm going to go back to... And, and so what happens is they go to Joseph, and, and if you go back to Genesis 50, you know, they say, um, you know, your father gave us a command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgressions of your servants of God and uh, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And so he's, you know, they're scared to death. And so they make this thing up that their dad said. And, and Joseph weeps over that. And look at what Joseph says. Joseph said to them, do not fear, am I in the place of me? But God meant it for good to bring about, um, about the many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so Joseph has this perspective that he's able to say, man, you guys had, you guys had bad purpose. I can see that. You know, but, but God meant it for good. God was in charge of this whole thing. But until that point, if you go from Genesis 57, you know, especially 30, where is God in this whole thing? 
because it looks like God isn't there. But if you look deeper, and if you read it expecting this, and that's a key thing, as you read it expecting it, always look for God as the main character because he's always going to be there. So, so for some reason it's freezing up. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll just go ahead and tell you what it is because it's, it's, uh, I don't think I have any real long ones coming up here. So uh, the second rule, as you, see the, as you see the lives of others, both the godly and the ungodly, Try to read the word existentially. Now, what I mean by that is existentially, it's, the idea is, is kind of experientially. Try to put yourself into the setting. I think one of the things that we tend to do is that we tend to, we tend to forget these were normal people. You know, we read these stories and, 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 you know, we think that these were these heroes of God and we think that they didn't struggle, that they didn't. I mean, let's take even for Joseph, for example. You know, when you look at, in Joseph, um, in Genesis, Genesis 39, you have you know, Potiphar's wife chasing after him. Okay, let's think about this for a while. Read this existentially. Here you have, let me go, back, go there, Genesis 39. So you have, um, I'll pick it up in verse 7. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and say, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has under my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie, uh, to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, I want you to realize, okay, what it talks about, that he wouldn't speak to her, he wouldn't be with her. Now, why? Well, but, but there's often this perception that this guy was strong, that he was, you know, that he was committed, he was... And here's where you got to read it experientially. Now, first of all, think about, here you have this wife who's trying to seduce the slave... Do you think this is the first time she's ever done this? No, I mean, it's not like she's been totally faithful and she's like, oh, I think I'm going to act out in this one time and is this aggressive. So here's someone who, she sleeps around a lot and is probably not only that, but is very sensitive to the whole issue of appearance. And so she's, she's, Seductive in every sense of the way. Now, let's think about Joseph. Okay, he is probably mid-20s, single, isolated, by himself. And you have this seductive, attractive woman trying to seduce you and just say, hey, we'll just have sex, it's nothing. Do you think, but do you think that he was tempted? See, here's what you got to realize. When you look at the passage, when it says that he wouldn't be with her, let's go back. Now, let's keep going. One day, he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there. And she caught him by the garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, why did he leave his garment and fled? Or fled? 
fled, fled, flee. Why did he do whatever he did? Uh, the thing is, is what happened is that I really think when you look at this, he, why didn't he be with her? Because he knew he did. Why did he leave his garment? Because he knew if I stayed long enough to get my coat back, I'm not, you know, I'm losing everything. And I think when you look at this, when you read it, you know, the thing is that, again, we tend to read of these guys, are these heroes, and they don't, no, they were like us. They were, I mean, if you think about a 25-year-old, and us men probably can think of this a little better. If I think about 25, I'm single, I'm by myself, I'm lonely, um, and nobody knows. There's no, it's not like I've got any family or any church that's there to hold me accountable. Nobody knows any of this. And you th- and then you have an attractive woman that's coming and trying to seduce you. Yeah, there's a temptation. And we think that sometimes the the, the historicity, the greater strength is a person that's saying, no, he's real and he is tempted and that somehow he deals with that. And how did he deal with it? He dealt with it with the wisdom of saying, I'm not even going to be with her because if I'm with her, I'm too tempted. I can't handle the temptation. So I, I gained victory of the temptation by avoiding it. And then when she catches him unexpectedly, he literally drops his coat and runs because my coat, you know, I'm, I'm losing my purity. And so you read, you see, again, if I don't read that experientially, I can, I can read this kind of like a Sunday school lesson um, where I think of these people not as real people. But if I read it experientially and think of them as real people and I think about what it was like. Let me give you another one. Okay, this is a very, very well-known passage. Think of it experientially, Genesis 22. All right, the story of um, Abraham and his son offering his son Isaac. Can I think of this experientially? God comes to Isaac or, or Abraham and says, okay, Abraham, I want you to offer your son to bless you and make you a father of many nations through with your wife, Sarah. Sarah's dead. This is it. And so God has made a promise, and it's kind of like, this seems to be obvious, the only way that this promise is going to be fulfilled is through Isaac, and now, God, you're telling me to sacrifice my son Isaac. What's he thinking? Now, let's go and look at the verses. Um, Look at, I'm going to really emphasize verse 3. But then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, Go to the region of Morah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I tell you, tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two, two servants and his son Isaac. When he had enough wood uh, for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. Um, why did he get up early in the next morning? You don't know. The, now, Put yourself in the situation. This is your son. It's your whole son, your whole identity, your future. God's promised. God says, sacrifice him. Do you think he slept well? Yeah, but I think part of it is, I think not only did he sleep well, I don't think he slept. And he's struggling through the night, and it's not only hesitation, but it's like, I'm struggling through the night. Okay, the first, first dawn, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up and do it. It's just painful. It's just... I'm, Okay, I'm gonna, I can either sit there and argue with God and try to hope he changes his mind, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey, and I need to obey right away. Yeah, they had to travel quite a way. But it's like, it's, it, the description, it's like 
the dawn's first light. He was, you know, he was up and out, which again makes you think, okay, why was that? Why is there that emphasis? Because it's put there, it's emphasized there for a reason. All right, let's go back to, let's go back to, back to Joseph. Let's go back to Genesis 39. Um, We talked beforehand about Potiphar's wife and being there and, okay, let's look at the rest of the story. He goes in, she grabs him by the coat. He says, no, he leaves his coat, she runs. Um, okay, let's pick it up in verse 20 uh, or, ni- or 19. When his master heard the story of his wife saying, um, number one, she, he ran out, she claimed, you know, she says, okay, here's, you know, why did he do this? The master heard the story, his wife saying, and told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the prison where the king's pr- uh, prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all that he had held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Okay, now let me ask you this. Okay, we've read this story. Many of you Joseph into prison. It says he heard the story, he was angry. Huh? Oh, he did, yeah. It told him, you know, she says, why did you do this to me? Why did you bring this? So the wife said it, made it very clear, and he was angry. Who was he angry with? I would guess his wife, because he probably understood what really happened, or otherwise he'd have probably killed Joseph instead of putting him in prison. Okay, let's read it experientially. Let's look at it. Let's look at it experientially. There's two options. We usually think of it, he's mad at Joseph, so he throws him in Joseph in prison because he, how could you do this? But let's open up that possibility. It's with his wife. Okay, let's look at it experientially. Let's look at it again. It's all here. You know, the, all the hints are here. See, but the thing is, is it doesn't always tell us that clearly. They're all here. The hints are here. But this is the kind of thing that if you don't think experientially, you'll miss it. All right, so the wife said, this is how your slave treated me, and he burned with anger. It doesn't tell us who he burned with anger at. So Joseph's master took him and put him in a prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And not only that, but while Joseph was there, the warder was with him, and he showed kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now, okay, now let me ask you this. Okay, Potiphar was in charge of executions. He was a powerful guy. He was part of the army, but that was specifically one of his responsibilities. He was in charge of executions. If you have a powerful Egyptian ruler whose slave, who has no rights, tries to rape your wife, what would you expect that powerful Egyptian ruler who's in charge of executions, and you know that executions are illegal, especially for slaves who have no rights, what would you expect that guy to get done? Yeah, he killed you. But we say, okay, okay, well, if he doesn't do that, he throws him in prison. Which prison does he throw him in? The king's prison. Now, do you think that's the best prison or the worst prison? That's the best. Okay, let's keep going. Right. 
Right. So, so you know that the wife has almost certainly done this numerous times. She has a reputation. He knows it. And so he throws Joseph in the Cush prison. Now, betrayed you. You're going to the prison guard and you're saying, I trusted this guy. I trusted him with everything. He betrayed me. tried to wave my, you know. But somehow the prison guard ends up trusting Joseph and puts him in charge of the whole prison. Do you think if Potiphar came and said all that, you know, that, that this guy would give him that kind of trust? I think one thing we're looking at here, and especially going on, is that they can tell the character of Joseph and everything people are saying about him. They, in their mind, they guys say, this is so out of character with what Joseph was being accused of. Right. And it's in character with what the wife would do. So he comes and he sits there and he says, you know, why did you do? Well, even if you look at that, you know, he says, your slave tried to rape me. If he tried to wait, why did he leave his coat there if that was the evidence? I mean, so if you look at even the accusation, it doesn't make sense. Okay, now let's take it one step further. Now this is, this is like going a little later, and this is like where it gets awesome. This is like so, you know, incredible. You have Pharaoh has a dream, right? And he has this dream. No one can, no one can solve the dream. And so suddenly the cupbearer says, oh, I forgot. You know, I was in prison. And while I was in prison, this guy came and interpreted my dream. And so then Joseph comes and he, and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh and he says, you know, it's about the seven lean years, the seven you know, bad years. And he goes beyond that and he says, okay, what I recommend you do is you choose somebody that's going to be put in charge and he's going to, you know, gather the grain for seven years. And then Pharaoh turns around and says, okay, you're the guy, I'm going to put you in charge, which makes no sense. Why would you take a Hebrew slave and suddenly put him in charge of all this? Now let's think of it experientially. Think of this, okay, just, you gotta put yourself in the, in the, in the whole thing. The cupbearer goes to Pharaoh and says, I met this guy in prison, he interpreted my dream. So they send to get Joseph, and it takes him a while, Tell, it tells us it takes him a while. What do you think that Pharaoh's gonna do in that time that we're waiting for Joseph? Check out the guy's credibility. Yeah, he wants to know who this guy is. This guy's in prison. You know, so I'm going to figure out why he's in prison. You know, he's in my, the, you know, the king is, I, I didn't put him there. Who put him there? So he finds out who puts him there, and it just so happens to be his buddy, Potiphar, who's in charge of his guard. And he goes to Potiphar, and if Potiphar tells him, I put him in charge of my whole house, he betrayed me, tried to rape my wife, do you think that Pharaoh would ever, no matter what dreams he does, would put him in charge? But do you think it's possible that he called Potiphar in and Potiphar, he said, Potiphar, you know, this guy interpreted a dream. It's a guy that used to be a slave of yours and you put him in prison and let me ask you what happened. Who is this guy? And Potiphar says, you know my wife? And he says, yeah, do I know your wife? You know, just, you know. <laughs> this was a guy that I put in charge. And my wife tried to seduce him, and, and he had such integrity that he, that he refused. And to save face, I had to throw him in prison. And Pharaoh was like, that's a guy I can trust. I don't have anybody in my kingdom like that. 
which explains an unthinkable conclusion to take this slave that was in prison and suddenly make him second in charge of, suddenly it makes sense. But all the things that you think that God wasn't there, God was there. And if those things didn't happen, there's no way in the, way that, no way in the world that he'd ever be elevated to the position that he was elevated. But he, he was willing to be able to suffer for his integrity and God affirmed that suffering. And that was, I believe, when you put it all together, when you read it experientially, suddenly you see that was part of what God did to, to raise him up to the place of blessing that he eventually had. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Um, anyhow, that's, that's, there's some great stuff there. So, all right, let's, um, let me give you one more. I know we're, we're doing a lot of examples today. Again, this is reading it existentially. Um, if you ever read the story of Again, David, you've got to read some of these things experientially. We have, in the beginning of David's story, we have in Genesis, or Genesis, 1 Samuel 16, he's anointed king. And so here you've got this young kid who's a nobody in his own family, suddenly pulled out of the, out of the fields. He comes in, he's got the great prophet Samuel sitting there, and he calls him up and he anoints him and he basically says, okay, you're going to be the future king. It's like out of nowhere. And next thing you know, he's then called up to go take some food to his brothers and he defeats this great giant. He becomes a national hero out of nowhere. And if you think there was ever a guy that had a sense of, man, God's, God's got something for me. And then in the end, he has this brief period of time where you know, he becomes a son-in-law and he has all this success. The rest of 1 Samuel is that he's being chased and Saul's trying to kill him and everybody betrays him and everything falls apart. Do you think that David ever looked at that and said, why, God, what in the, I thought you anointed me king here. Why did you give me the success and now suddenly I'm being chased and I'm being, you know, think about this experientially. You know, he's doing this, everything right. God, how does this match with your promise? God, this is what you had promised here, and this, it doesn't match at all. Now, why did God record the anointing all the way back here? God didn't have to do that. Or he would have, why did he give him this hope, seemingly to have it all dashed for this period of time? And when you read, the, when you read the, especially the Psalms, and some of the struggle and some of the, you've got to read these things experientially. You've got, to, you've got to put yourself in David's shoes and think about this young guy that had, God had called him out. God said that he was going to be special and God, he's going to be king. And, and then he's literally you know, running for his life. He's got, at points, everybody's betrayed him. And we've got to read that, we can't just read it as, okay, this was this great hero of faith. This was a young guy that was, totally confused at times, totally broken at times, and totally confused because it seemed to be that what he was experiencing was a total, a total oddest with, you know, with what God had ostensibly said to him. But again, when you read it experientially, suddenly some of these things change. We relate to him. This was a guy like, that's why, that's when we did a study of David a couple years ago. I love David because this is a guy like us. I can relate to him. He's, he failed in a lot, a lot of ways that we do, and I do. Um, so, all right. 
Third rule, C. Within the immediate context, look for God's direct commentary on the behavior or the event. Okay, so within the immediate context, look for the, God's direct commentary on the behavior or the event. Now, this is rare. This is what's key. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, we're not going to talk about this one, but we referenced it before. It's, again, you know, the, the most, I think one of the more clear examples of that is um, David and, the, you know, Nathan, God sending the prophet. It was a direct commentary. There are a few other places where that happens. Let me give you some. Uh, Exodus 32, um, you know, you have the golden calf. All right, so when you look at the whole golden calf, um, what's happened? God immediately speaks. Leave me alone, verse 10, Exodus 32, 10. Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy all of them. Then I'll make you a great nation. You know, so God is pretty direct there, right? He's very, very direct. Um, you have in Job, you have at the end of Job, Job 42, that the Lord says, you know, said these things to Job, and then he said to his friends, I can't even say their two names, uh, but I'm angry with you and your, two, um, and your two friends because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And so he speaks very directly, and he said, okay, what? Now, most of Job, you don't have that. You have them speaking. But even in this book, it's rare that you have God say what you, you know, he said was right, you guys said was wrong. Uh, one more is that you have, um, you know, you have Peter's confession of faith. You know, that, you know, Jesus call, you know, calls him out and Peter says, who do you say? I'm, you know, the Holy Spirit has given you that. You know, that, you know, even in the gospels, you don't always have that. You have things that are said, but you don't even, you don't, Jesus doesn't even always say it. You know, you just, you look at what's said. And uh, so these are rare, but there are times that you have that direct commentary. And so you look at it and say, what is that direct commentary saying? Um, but again, that's it, but that's, if we look at that, I think, our, again, our problem is we expect that, and when we don't see it, you know, we think that God is okay with it, or we think that God isn't, you know, isn't, isn't, you know it isn't a problem. Um, and so, so you look for it when it's there, but you also recognize that it's rare. So then D, within the context of the book, look for God's indirect commentary on the behavior through the consequences. And... Um, and again, we've got to look at, we, we talked about some of this beforehand, a little up, up, before, you know, up, up above. And, um, and so again, you've got to look at that and you say, it's often, it's often not right away. But it's not only that you can see that he met many wives and the consequences seem okay for, you know, but then you look back, I'm sorry, let me say it again. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, within the context of the book, look for God's indirect commentary on the behavior or the event through consequences. So it's indirect commentary through the consequences. I'm sorry, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm used to having my notes up there. Um, so what, uh, what you have is you have, again, with David, I think we mentioned this last time, it's, it's not only when he married multiple wives, part of the commentary is when he started to compromise sexually Going outside of God's plan of one man, one woman, and we talked about this as far as looking back in Scripture, when he went outside of that plan, again, where did the whole fall with Bathsheba start? It wasn't because he was walking out on the rooftop. The fall with Bathsheba started when he said, I'm going to go outside of God's plan, and if I could have multiple wives, 
Now, here's the whole idea. You have people, there's a viral man, and he needs to have you know, multiple wives. Did multiple wives satisfy David more? Or did it just stimulate his desire so that he would go further and further outside of God's plan? Now, let's, you know, I said, okay, you know, in the 50s and 60s, okay, well, we're going to have no-fault divorce, and we're going to, you know, break down the barriers of premarital sex, and so, you know, that you can have sex before you're married, and, and we start to go outside of God's plan for sexuality. Has our culture become more satisfied sexually? As we've gone outside of God's plan, what happens? I've got to go further and further and further and further, and we get, you know, so now you've got, you know, you know homosexuality, transgender, you've, you know, got, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I wouldn't even, stuff that is out there that I, I wouldn't even mention. I mean, just like so disgustingly sick. Um, so the principles are true. You see, but you see this taught in David's life. You see it taught to scripture, but it's the consequences aren't auto, 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 automatically, or they're the positive as well. So if you look at like an Acts, it's really interesting, especially in early Acts, there are several places where it talks about and God blessed them and added to the number daily. God blessed them and added to the number regularly. God, and so there's numerous places where that happened. Blessed them. Okay, let's read what happened right beforehand and say what was it that they were doing that God blessed them. And what you find is you find some descriptions of certain kind of behaviors. Or you find that every, you know, basically every time before there's kind of this major bump of, of, of revival, some kind of movement, every time before that there's a, there's a description of the church praying. So you look at that and you see certain things that when you read the book of Acts and you say, what are these patterns? Where does God bless, where does it say God blesses them? Where do you see these descriptions of growth? And what happened was right before that. And it's amazing that when you see some of these things, it's, it's right there. You know, direct commentary on the behavior through consequences. And we've seen, again, a number of those things, but that's just pulling some of the different ones out. All right, E. In the broader context of the Bible, what clear teaching... In the broader context of the Bible, what clear teaching has been given which helps interpret the meaning behind it? So you're looking at you know, the whole context. It's not just right there, but the broader context. Um, what clear teaching has been given which helps interpret the meaning of behind the events recorded? Uh, I think I've, I've, we, we shared some of this in the beginning of the year, a, a, past, a message on some of these ideas. One of the things is that you look at, and many of us that remember when if we're raised in church, we're kind of raised with certain Sunday school stories of these Old Testament great battles and Jericho and Gideon and things like that. And, and, and you, so you look at that and you say, you know, for those that were here, you know, you look at this and you say, okay, what does it mean to be, what can I learn from Jericho? What do, I, what do I learn from this battle of Jericho where you have God show up and tell seven times with no weapons, you know, and you, you just march around the city, and, and the seventh day, or one day every day for seven days, the seventh day, march seven times, and then blow horns and shout. You know, and, and that's the strategy. Now, what in the world, what's the application of that? Now, okay, but, but what is our, how do we do that? What is he calling us to do like Jericho? Yeah. See, but that's what we have to struggle with. 
Is there anything that God calls us to do that it's obedience, that it seems to be accomplishing nothing, but he says, if you continue to do this, it's going to accomplish and win the, it's going to win the victory. Is, does God ever do that for us in the New Testament era? Yeah, and you know what specifically what that looks like? Prayer. I mean, how many of us have ever felt like we have been marching around this wall forever? I've been praying for this person. I've been praying for this. And you, you, know, you get worn out. And you, you, know, you lose hope. And you're like, it's accomplishing nothing. God, I go in there and I pray and I pray and I've been praying for this person for this long and nothing seems to be happening. You know, it's like, okay, God, what do you want me to do? How do I, how do I conquer? And, and God says, no, I want you to fight the battle. I don't want you to fight the battle by demonstrating faith and recognizing that I will win the battle. So pray, march around the wall. Just keep marching around the wall and pray that, you know, believe that if you march around the wall enough, that at the end of the day, I'm going to win the victory. I'm going to win the battle. So if you ever get discouraged about that, you know, recognize that these, these pictures, these great battles, they actually are incredibly relevant for us as New Testament believers. All right, now here's the question. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to be able to get into a little bit of my theological um, perspective here, but then we ask a question this, but how do I know if this is the battle God called me to? What if I'm praying for this person and God didn't choose this person? God, they're never going to believe. They're never going to... Have you ever struggled with that? How many have you ever struggled with? But it doesn't seem to be happening. How do I know that God's going to win this battle? Right. Now, here's part of the question. You're right. What's the purpose of prayer? The prayer, God changing us. So if it's not, if I think of it as, I, well, God, I'm doing this and you're not doing it. And so if I, I give up because I think that the purpose of prayer is me somehow changing God's mind or God being able to, if I question my ability to change God's mind or the person's ability to believe, oh, I'm going to give up, I'm going to get. But if the purpose of prayer and here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acknowledge I'm coming at it from a little more emphasis on God's election, and we just saw that and in, in taught in John 6, so I can kind of refer to that. If God is initiator in the process of salvation, and the purpose of prayer is God to change our heart, then God motivates us to prayer so that we have the, ch- the privilege and the opportunity of participating in his plan. And so if God has moved me to to pray, and if it's ultimately not about my ability to convince the person to believe or their ability to somehow change or believe, but God's ability to change them, it's God's ability to invade their heart and do the miracle that he did with Saul where he appears and he transforms this person, then how do I know that this person is going to believe? How do I know I should be praying for him? How do I know that this is is a battle that God wants to win? Because God laid it on your heart. Now, can I guarantee that every person we pray for, every person is going to come, but you know what? I, I can't do that, but I'll tell you this. Talk to people who have been believers and have been praying. You say, who have you prayed for consistently in your life? And you know what I find out is people that have prayed consistently for people in their life, you say, how many, people have, how many of them come to know Christ? And most of them have. Now, there were times that you're like, oh, that person can never come to Christ, that person. But most of them, why? Because God lays it on our heart 
because he says, okay, I've told you to march around that wall because I want to tear it down. Which gives you hope. I mean, it gives you hope. I want to encourage you, if you're here and you've got people in your life that you've been praying for for a long time and you're like, man, they're not believers and I don't know if I... Man, if God lays it on your heart, then pray with confidence, pray with hope. And it's like, I know it's hard to pray when we're just, you know... You don't see it coming, and they seem so close. Laid upon your heart, the whole understanding of prayer, and the whole thing about what you know, how God works. Keep marching around the wall. Keep you know. Don't think that it's not accomplishing anything because it's God that wins the battle, and and our participation in the battle is demonstrating our confidence in His ability to win it. And it seems like it's doing nothing, but the fact is, you look at the whole thing. It did nothing until they shouted, and suddenly the whole wall fell. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? And anyhow, that's... Um, let me take one more. Um, we're coming up Easter, all right? Many of us know Luke chapter 22, and you have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, let me... 239, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed them, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not, or not enter into temptation. And there he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him from an angel strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, here you've got to say, okay, now what is this whole thing? What is this meaning? What is this and, and here's what one of the things that I, you know, you talk about while well, he's praying before the cross and Lord, if he, I, you, I want you to think about it this way. When you study the history of the church, what you find is that you had all these people that, that faced death and execution with tremendous bravery. And that's, you know, you've got, I mean, I can tell you all these stories of, you know, these great stories of people that faced execution, faced, you know, faced, you know, uh, being burned alive, faced the lions with great bravery. And you say, that's great faith. Now, why is it that Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, doesn't seem to be showing the kind of bravery? Or does it? Have you ever thought about that? Is, that is, this, is he less brave? Why is he struggling? And why is it specifically this description of sweating blood? You know, and this, I mean, this is like, you know, this is like incredible trauma. But yet, we have people that have followed him that seem to have great peace. What do you think? Well, they have great peace because of what he did, but he was taking on the weight of all the sin that had ever been committed, uh, and, and him being holy and taking that on to himself was contrary to his very nature. Yep. And he's praying, and angels came and strengthened him. But in spite of having this extra angels, he's still sweating blood. He's still more stressed in, in turmoil than, than ever we would expect. And we would look at this and say, here you have his followers have great peace and death, and he doesn't. Unless something else is happening. And so... Well, 
let's look here. Let's look at Scripture, interpret Scripture, all right? What are the other scriptural principles that speak to this? And the key thing here is when it talks about why does he say, let this cup pass from me? You ever wondered that? Why does he use that language? Well, then you sit there and say, are there other passages that speak in those terms? So let's look at, let's think about scripture. Does scripture talk about the terminology of cup? And the fact is it does. And you know what it describes it as? God's judgment. You know, Jeremiah 25, 15, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take, my, um, take from my hand this cup of wine and of wrath and make it all the nations to whom I send, to, and, and I send you to drink it, and they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending amongst you. Ezekiel 23, uh, you'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, or a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria, you'll drink it and drain it out and it will and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. And, and it has these incredible descriptions of the cup of God's wrath. And here's what you say, okay, now what is it talking about? You know what I believe and, mo- and people believe is what's happening? He's not only saying, okay, let this cup of, not death, but wrath, but not only that, but, but the whole description of him sweating with blood is that it wasn't just about anticipation that what we believe, what I believe clearly the, the Bible's teaching actually happened in the Garden of Eden is that he sipped the cup. That he experienced something of the wrath of God. He just got a little tiny taste. And here's where people argue, you've got to realize that Jesus could have at, at the point when he said, you know, if he didn't do that, you know, he gets up on the cross and suddenly it's there and he's like, I don't know what I'm getting into. You know, it's kind of like he, he gave up, but he didn't know what he was giving up. He didn't know what he was actually sacrificing. And God says for you to really do, for him to really offer the sacrifice, he had to fully understand what he was going to experience. He had to fully understand the pain that he was going to take before he took it. And so he said, let this cup, and he got a sip of the cup to know what the cup was. And just the sip was so traumatic that it wasn't anticipation of the death that was coming, it was a tiny sip of what was to come, and it was so traumatic that his body was you know, sweating blood because it was that traumatic. And so if that's what the sip was like, what happened when he drank it to the full dregs? Yeah, yeah, that's what, um, that's what uh, um, Luke says, that he was sweating, that literally what was happening is that his body had such pressure that his blood vessels burst, and phys- physically we know this is how it happens. This bl- is while he was praying? Right, he was, he was sweating blood. So that's in uh, Luke um, 22, uh, 2244. You know, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And so he was, you know, his body was, his blood vessels were bursting inside of him because of the agony of just the tiny sip of that cup of wrath. Now, suddenly that makes sense, doesn't it? Suddenly, you know, but you've got to read it and you've got to say, what is it saying? And, and what are, you know, and when you, when you pick out the, the cup and then you, and you see it with other scripture, Suddenly it makes sense. And suddenly we appreciate not only the picture, incredible picture of what was happening in the Garden of Eden, but suddenly then you also you start to understand what happened at the cross. And so if you want to know what happened at the cross, 
you know, people, this was the, the, uh, the torture and all that, which was powerful. But there's a reason, the reason that Jesus died on the cross was this. It was, the, again, the most horrific form of execution ever devised by man. The whole reason was that it was to show that the worst that man can do was a, was a bad picture of the pain that he actually went through. The actual turmoil and torture that Jesus went through was far deeper, and it was the wrath of God. The, the human sacrifice or, or suffering that he went through was just was, was the image. It wasn't the reality. So the reality is what he sipped here and what he fully drank when he took the full wrath of God, which is why we read that, again, to put a spear in his side to make sure that he was dead, and blood and water spilled out which again now we know medically that blood and water spills out because the heart bursts and then blood begins to separate. And so he literally died because his body was incapable, the human body was incapable of dealing with the suffering that he was going through, which is incredible. But you see that all played out when you see the whole of Scripture. You know, Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, all right, F, especially as it relates to issues of theology and doctrine, the historical narrative must be interpreted by the didactic writings. Now, this is really important, and this is the part that I mentioned earlier, which we're going to get into Acts especially. Especially as it relates to, re, relates to issues of theology and doctrine, historical narrative must be interpreted by didactic writings. The danger is the temptation that you read something that happened and you make it normative and we build theology based on the experience that we read somewhere in, you know, somewhere, especially in Acts, but anywhere in, in historical narrative. Um, here, it tells you the purpose of the narrative is to tell us the story. The narrative tells us the story, the purpose, and when I say epistles, that's the primary, um, Didactic, that's the primary teaching sections. The purpose of the epistles is to tells us what happened. And there's teaching within the narrative teaching us about that. But there are times that it tells us what happened, but it doesn't fully tell us, okay, are these things to be normative? Are these things to be... And that's what you have, as in the, especially in the epistles, as it relates to Acts, or the Gospels as well, but especially the Acts, is it tells us what to think about what happened. See, the, the historical narrative interprets, it tells us the event, it records the event, it teaches something there, but it's not intended to teach primary doctrine. You know, that's where you have the didactic, is where you have, okay, here's an event, okay, the, the didactic says, okay, now let me teach you the doctrine, let's explain it. Let's talk about things that we want to, you know, that the churches continue to do. For Acts, the rule in studying Acts, you do not teach the experiences of the apostles don't teach the experience of the apostles, you experience their teachings. Don't teach the experience of the apostles, experience their teaching. And here's what's happening, is that everything that happened to the early church, just because it was the early church, doesn't necessarily mean that that's what God wanted. And, you know, that, um, okay, let's take some examples. Um, really awesome one, okay? Acts chapter two, what happened? The Holy Spirit showed up. They spake, spoke in tongues. So does that mean that every time that a believer gets the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues? You have whole denominations built on that. You know, that you have whole denominations or that you say, well, Acts 2, and then also in Acts 8 and Acts 10, and, 
you know, and so that there's this idea that you speak in tongues or that, you know, there's a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you've never spoken in tongues, then you just haven't really received the Holy Spirit. You don't have the full, and you have whole denominations that are said, because that happened, therefore it's normative. And what they're doing is they're developing theology from historical narrative. Historical narrative, you don't develop theology from that, especially in Acts. What you have in the epistles is that's the commentary on Acts. And so you have the apostles saying, okay, here, let me write the commentary so that you know what to think about the things that happened. So scripture interprets scripture. And so you could look at all these things that are taught, especially by Paul and, you know, and Ephesians, Corinthians, you know, that, you know, and what does Paul say in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, you know, verse 7, each one the manifestation is given for the common good. Verse 13, we were all baptized in one spirit and in one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or Greeks. Each one of us are given the Holy Spirit. It's not like some believers have it, some don't. No, we all have it. We all have the Holy Spirit. That, you know, Ephesians talks about this. There's one body, one spirit, as you were called, and one hope when you're called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father is over all in all. To each, uh, to each one of us, his grace has been given as Christ's apportionment. So we all have the Holy Spirit. There's one baptism. There's not two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is clear on that. The, you know, the commentary is really clear. You develop your theology based on the commentary of the, of the didactic, of the teaching. That's the apostles explaining what happened. Don't develop theology based on experiences. It, you know, and, and again, it causes so many problems. Um, and again, we can continue on and so many other things that, about, um, you know, about the whole idea of what the Bible teaches. Even there, um, you could say, okay, then why is it that there, you know, there's three times that you have the, in the book of Acts that people believed and then spoke in tongues? So why is it not just in Acts chapter 2? Why is it in Acts chapter 8? Why is it in you know, Samaritans? Why is it in, um, uh, I'm sorry, Acts 6, I think, in Acts 10, you know, when the um, when, when first Gentile believed, Cornelius? Why is it that you have these three times? Scripture interprets Scripture. All right. In this case, we're not going just to, you know, forward to the epistles, but let's go back to the words of Jesus. All right. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Peter's, in a sense, given these keys of this kingdom. Now keep that in mind. Let's go to Acts 1 8. The beginning of Acts, the words of Jesus, teaching, didactic. Uh, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes up. And so what's it saying? So there's an outline here saying, here's how I'm going to work. I'm going to start in Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Judea. I'm going to you know, start here. I'm going to go to all of Israel. Then I'm going to go to Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth, Gentiles. All right? That's, that's an outline for the whole book of Acts. That's the outline of how God's going to work. Now, here's what you've got to realize. The Jews always thought you had to be a Jew to be a believer. You had to convert to Judaism. Could anybody be a believer who wasn't a Jew? You couldn't be a, you couldn't be a Jewish believer without being a Jew. Could you be a Christian believer without being a Jew? So here's what God does. God put these things in here. Jesus taught these things to set it all up, to set us up for us understanding the whole book of Acts and how this plays out. So you have the Holy Spirit come, and they say tongues, first time. Very clear passage. It happens a second time. When's the second time? You have Samaritans believe, because God was going to work in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So can you have a Samaritan who doesn't convert to Judaism become a true believer, a half-Jew, 
somebody who's not part of the Jewish community, could they become a true believer in Christ without being, becoming a Jew? So they believe, and what happens? They send for Peter, who has the keys to the kingdom, who's the one that says, okay, Jesus said, I'm gonna be, I give you the ability to unlock this kingdom, this moving kingdom, which I talked about in Acts chapter 1-8, this kingdom that was going to expand from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the earth. So now you were there when it started in Jerusalem, and it's expanding here. Now can it go? Peter comes down there, and the second time they speak in tongues, just like they did the first time. And so suddenly as everybody's saying, the keys, he's got the keys. The kingdom has been opened beyond just Jews. It's been opened to Samaria, just like Jesus said it would be. But Samaritans, that's one thing. Could it go to the ends of the earth? Could it go to Gentiles? So what happens? God gives a vision, comes and gets him. So, so he's clearly sent. Peter, this guy with the keys of the kingdom, is sent to this, this God-fearing Gentile, and suddenly Peter realizes, okay, the dream that I was given, God's telling me I should share the gospel with him. He shares the gospel. And suddenly he starts speaking in tongues. Those are the only times that it happens. Because it's normative for every believer? No, because the Bible is telling us here, here you have Peter, who's the guy with the keys to the kingdom, who is unlocking first Jerusalem, then he's unlocking Samaria, then he's unlocking to the ends of the earth. And it's those, every time you have the keys turned, you have speaking in tongues to say, we want you to be really clear that God is working in this group as well. They don't have to become Jewish. You don't, it's not rooted in Jerusalem. So the passage is right there, you see? But it's, it's drawn from the didactic, the teaching of Jesus that explains the experiences. And suddenly experiences become incredibly meaningful. Um, and um, one, more, one more real quickly. I, th I think we mentioned this before, okay? Acts 2, uh, 42 to 47. Part of what it says in verse 44 is that they all had all things in common. Does God want us to be, um, you know, set up Christian communes? I've heard people said that's the ideal, you know, that would be ideal, but, you know, we don't live in the ideal, and so should we work towards the ideal? There have been Christians that have done that, that have set up Christian communes. You know, we want to really obey God with that. Is that, is that the norm? that all believers would in one heart and have all things in common. Um, is that the norm? Okay, where's it taught in the epistles? Don't teach the experience of the apostles, experience their teachings. It's not taught there. Okay, one of the reasons why they maybe thought this is you've got to go back and you've got to say, okay, the Bible's really clear when you pick this up. The early church, they all kind of thought Jesus was going up to heaven for a little while and then coming right back. You know, you have, you have you know, even, um, uh, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians, you know, talks, or I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, he talks about, you know, we who are still alive, who are left into the coming of the Lord. He thought that he would, initially, he thought Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. That's what he thought. That's what everybody thought. Um, and so you look at that and you say, okay, that's, that's what they expected. So I, Now there's a good heart with that, but is that what should be normative? It's not ever taught. You see something of what it might have driven it. Okay, let's look at some of the experiences, the consequences. So we had the, the Jerusalem church specifically sold their possessions and gave to everybody as a need. Now their possessions were primarily their land. 
right? Because this was primarily a, an agricultural community. Now, do you know of anything of the status of the Jerusalem church, let's say later in Paul's ministry? They were destitute. They're taking, they're taking collections for them all the time. Now, do you think that one of the reasons that they were maybe destitute is that people sold their land and therefore couldn't grow food? If you understand that they sold their possessions, they weren't selling their jewelry or their TVs. They were selling their land, the land they needed to survive that may have been a really, really good-hearted motive, but based on, on an optimism of bad theology, that actually, when you study the whole passage, it not only is never repeated that we should do that, but when you study all of the Bible, it kind of hints that maybe the consequences of that in the long run really weren't that great. But when you look there, you see suddenly, do you see suddenly there's, there's stuff there, there's things hinted there? But the problem is, is that there are a lot of people that will take Acts 2 and say that's the ideal and that's what we should strive for because the early church did that and God blessed them. You know, that's, that's what we should do. Okay, don't teach the experience of the Acts, the apostles experience their teachings. Do you think if God wanted us to do that, that somewhere in there the, one of the apostles would have written something that would have suggested that was a good idea? Yeah, you know, that's because all what you have is the epistles. You have the epistles are the commentary on the gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. They're taking these ideas and they're expounding on them. Um, so, uh, I, I, I could get a couple more, but we're running out of time. And um, there's a lot of great stuff here. And, and, and I hope it helps. I hope you know, because you know, we are, we struggle with the historical narrative. It's, there's so much there in the Bible, and sometimes it's like, man, it's really there, and sometimes it's like, what in the world is this saying? And I hope some of these principles help. Um, next week, we're going to try to cover prophecy, or not prophecy, uh, wisdom and poetic. And uh, so we're going to cover those pretty quickly. So it's going to be, wisdom is primarily Proverbs, but also Song of Solomon, um, um, Job, you know, a couple other passages. And then poetic is predominantly the Psalms, but then there's some other sections that are poetic as well. And, um, and so we'll kind of look at some really kind of unique rules of each of those. And, uh, and then in two weeks, we'll come back to prophecy. But let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we'd spend. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the principles that are here, just the joy that we can have in being students of your word. Father, being of, of not only, again, seeing these principles, but Father, then diving in and kind of unlocking them and applying them. And Father, seeing how they speak to us today. Father, thank you that you can give us principles that take these, some of these passages that are maybe hard handable. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to, at the end of the day, not only understand these principles, but still, Father, even more so to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Uh, that in seeking to understand these things, we would learn how to rightly handle the word of truth. But Father, at the end, even beyond that, we learn how to rely on, on your spirit to lead us and guide us and teach us in all things. Uh, that we would be men and women who would not only know your word, but through your word, Father, that we would know you. Father, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.